This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Speaking today with the historian Erica Benner about the life and thought of Niccolo Machiavelli. Your new book, Erica, comes with the title, Be Like the Fox, a title that can be read as characterization of Machiavelli, the man himself, and as his instruction to apprentice princes who would be kings. But before we get to the news and fake news about Machiavelli and his various roles as poetic oracle, political game changer, and comic playwright, Maybe you can begin with a brief summary of time and place. Where and when is Machiavelli playing at the game of politics with the play of words? Uh, yeah, Machiavelli was in, born in Florence in 1469. Um, he died in 1527 when he was in his late 50s. And Florence at the time of Machiavelli's birth was in name a republic, it had been a republic for about 300 years um, with a very distinctive system um, of government, which had elections on a very frequent basis for different leadership positions. Um, the main leader was only allowed to stay in power for two months at a time. It was They, they trusted power that little. And the rule of law was very, very important to Florence by tradition. But at the time that Machiavelli was born in, in Florence, a new ruling family had been in power for a little while, the Medici. Um, the Medici were a family of bankers and businessmen who had come to dominate Florentine politics for about 60 years before Machiavelli was born. Um, and although they weren't officially princes, they had no official titles. In effect, they were sort of the government, the governing family in Florence, um, and everyone was, you know, kind of knew that they were the real power brokers. And if you wanted anything done, you had to be on good terms with the Medici. Increasingly, they come to take over the republic and make it look more and more like a dynasty and a principality. So that's the setting into which Machiavelli was born. The issues he was really interested in throughout his life were um, the questions of. What's the best form of government? Is it a principality? Is it a republic? Are there different situations when you need one or the other? And he's sort of lived those problems very vitally in his own times. I think your book divides in, in a really two broad sections. The first one is up through his early life and his serving as the uh, second secretary in the Florentine Republic, beginning with time of Savonarola and up until the a change of government in Florence in 1512. And then after that, he's not in power in office, but he's a, a writer of history, of pamphlets, of the famous discourse, The Prince, of comic plays and so on. So talk about him as a young man coming into office in the Florentine Republic, sort of between 1494 and, and 1512. Yeah, okay. As a, as a kind of backstory to that, um, briefly, the Medici were 
in power up until 1494, when Machiavelli was in his 20s. They were then kicked out in a coup. And Machiavelli, the first we really hear about Machiavelli as an adult is a few years after the Medici had been sent into exile outside Florence and a new sort of very sort of um, popular republic had been restored in Florence with a very broad kind of general council of citizens. So the princes were no longer, the unofficial princes were no longer in power at the time when Machiavelli enters into the political scene himself and, as you say, became kind of secretary of the republic um, and, and one of the main people in charge of looking after Florence's defenses, a very important job. And he served his country, as we can, you know, we see from his letters and his various dispatches, as well as his later political writings, looking back on his youth, he was a really devoted kind of servant of this republic. He wanted a republican form of government to stay alive, in spite of the fact that it was under threat, both from the Medici, who were in exile in Rome and other cities in Italy, and they had lots of powerful supporters in other cities um, in Italy and, and in Spain and in the papacy. And uh, Machiavelli was, you know, diplomat. He went and talked to lots of powerful people, tried to persuade them to stay on Florence's side and to support the Republic against those who wanted to reconvert the Republic into a Medici principality. So so on his travels, he, he runs across Cesare Borgia, he, the King of France, the Holy Roman Emperor. I mean, he, yep. he's a man tra- traveling in, in uh, high circles. He's traveling in with high circles, but he wasn't actually in them at all. And this is kind of an important uh, point because some people see that, oh, Ma- you know, Machiavelli talked to these, you know, the popes and Cesare Borgia. He had actual conversations with King Louis of France. Well, he did, but that was in his capacity as a very low-level diplomat. He didn't actually have high status in the, in the Florentine political scene because his family was not one of the highest status families. Yes, but he had the chance to observe the uh, men in power. That's absolutely right. Yeah, he, he was right up front and close with, <laughs> with um, some of the most notorious political men of his age, Cesare Borgia, Cesare Borgia's father, Pope Alexander VI, he really had to deal with the King of France and his uh, colleagues, who were the most, some of the most powerful people in Europe at the time. To, and he, he got very close to some of these uh, agents of the king to try to get the French to support Florence against the Medici and against the papacy, um, who were trying to change them back into a more princely style of government. One of the wonderful things about your book, there are many wonderful things about your book, but one of them is the way you, it's almost as if you, as the author, are having a conversation with Machiavelli, and you're basing your that conversation on his letters, on his uh, later historical writings, on his plays, on, and he, he writes in... in uh, Many voices, and you engage with with uh, all of them in, in in his own words. Yeah, this is something that's so um, you know wonderful about studying or working on Machiavelli or just reading him as a someone who's interested. It, you, he, his letters, his correspondence, both personal and and his um, diplomatic correspondence when he was serving Florence outside, are mostly translated into English. If you don't. No Italian, and if you do, it's all the better, but they're fantastic. I mean, these letters give such a vivid sense of the people he was meeting. He, he, he's a natural dramatist, 
as we'll talk about later, he depicts the characters he's meeting and you, you know, with, with very small strokes, you feel like you're, you know who this Cesare Borgia is. You, you get a real sense of his inner workings as Machiavelli perceives them just by reading Machiavelli's descriptions and his own kind of interactions with them come through in the, on the paper. So as a biographer, it's actually pretty easy to, to, you know, with a little bit of imagination, engage with Machiavelli himself and all these people he was meeting and imagine how, uh, you know, how it felt because the resources are just fantastic. During the this period we're talking, 1494, 1512, one of his big projects is on behalf of the Republic of Florence, developing its own armed services, uh, a militia, because he comes to the conclusion that a any kind of state, government, republic, cannot depend on foreign mercenaries. And that's one of his central ideas. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, you know, this became Machiavelli's sort of pet project, as you like, uh, as you, uh, uh, if you like, creating a militia that was staffed by Florentine citizens, people who are just ordinary, you know, working men um, or middle class merchant men, indeed, according to his ideal. In fact, all he was able to persuade uh, the government to, to, um, to manage was to create a militia of some peasants in the countryside because most of the kind of more upper class people in Florence were very worried about giving alms to the lower class people because they might become discontented with their rule and use the alms against them. This was an old worry, um, this kind of aristocratic worry that, you know, prevented a lot of city-states in Italy from adopting their own arms and from relying on mercenaries. And Machiavelli decided to kind of really, really work out some arguments that it was in Florence's best interest to, you know, arm your own citizens, give them military training. That may mean you have to also take measures to reform your own political institutions to give them more political power, because if they feel like they don't have any political power, but, you know, they're fighting and dying for your city, um, that might not end up, end up, you know, pleasing them that much either. So he did actually advance this idea of a civilian militia with the political gen- agenda as well, an agenda form to make Florence a more sort of thoroughly Republican, uh, egalitarian sort of city. Does that also help Florence to win its war with Pisa. It did. This was one of the uh, um, one of the sole successes of Machiavelli's militia because it didn't last very long. The Medici soon came back into power and uh, abolished it. But in the short period when the militia did exist, it did help the Florentines to finally regain the lost city of Pisa that they had controlled for a long time and then it had rebelled. So Machiavelli did see it, and he was hailed by a lot of his contemporaries at the time as being the architect of this you know, great military success in Florence. You say somewhere, I think, in your book that the true tragic hero of your book is the Republic of, of Florence. And the Machiavelli, during his service, roughly, what, 1500, 1512, manages to create, at least for a short time, the militia and win the war against Pisa, and by he also learns from study of foreign courts that 
there must be at the root of the republic the rule of law. And he manages to keep that together for a while. Is that fair? Yes. I think you know, one thing I tried to kind of really bring out in, uh, in this book, because it's something I think most even Machiavelli scholars disagree about and don't always, I think, see in Machiavelli, is how much he was concerned to make the rule of law the basis of any stable republic. He wasn't just saying, oh, republics are good because they allow you know, the majority of people to be self-governing rather than some small elite. He did think that, but he also thought that the best way to, to make a sort of stable political order of any kind, when you have the in- inevitable disagreements and party divisions and, you know, ambitious men who, you know, come up and through the ranks and want to get more power than they should, the laws will check them. Checks and balances were the essence, I think, for Machiavelli of a strong republic. And this is an old idea. He got it from Greek and Roman authors um, uh, who, who praised the early Roman republic's rule of law. And I think in Florence at the time when Machiavelli lived, a lot of people had this sort of, you know, this sort of platitudinous notion that rule of law is a good thing. We, you know, the the laws that we have for Florence are somehow sacred, but what that really meant in practice and why they were sacred was something that most people just took for granted. And they hadn't really, they didn't really grasp anymore the reasons why you need it, because when you don't have the rule of law, things can go bad very, very quickly. And I think this is something Machiavelli tries to remind people of throughout his life. And this, of course, is at odds with the reputation that he gathers in the later 16th century and all the way down to our own time as a man who does not believe in the, in, in the rule of law, who believes in cynical manipulation, in running, uh, depending on, on fear instead of love to successfully govern a, a, a state. I mean, many writers in the 16th century you know, believed that Machiavelli was Satan, yes. <laughs> and, 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 and that he was this, you know, he had complete disregard for the real rule of law. I mean, and, and yep. <laughs> now how does, that, how does that come about? I mean, that comes out of his, the writing of The Prince, and, and when, when does he write The Prince? And it, it, it's after he's out, after the Republic is no longer there when it's in 1512, when the, when the Medici uh, come back and, and Machiavelli is tortured and, and briefly imprisoned. So, so give me, you know, tell me from the end of the Republic in 1512 to the writing of the prince and in what voice Machiavelli was writing the prince. Yeah. So, yeah, as you say, I mean, uh, the in 1512, the Medici were swept back into power in a coup backed by Spanish and papal forces. So it was a foreign-led coup. It wasn't a popular internal um, support. And Machiavelli, who you know set up this astonishing militia and had been one of the you know very close associates of the main of the leader of the Florentine Republic at the time, he lost his job. He was one of the very few people who was singled out to lose all his political positions and was 
basically sent into metaphorical exile in the countryside. He, he was still in Florence, but then he was able to come to Florence, but he wasn't allowed to come close to government buildings for an indefinite period of time. So this had him very um, upset, but what made it even worse was, as you also said, um, some months after this happened, he was then suspected of being involved in a conspiracy to murder one of the Medici family who are now back ruling Florence. Um, and although nothing was ever proven against him, they imprisoned him, they tortured him, and he was released in, a, in an amnesty by good fortune, but wasn't allowed to take part in politics. So there he is. He's, he's in metaphorical exile in his farm outside Florence, uh, spending his time, as he tells friends in his letters, you know, idling the time away, um, you know, not knowing what to do with myself. I'm a political animal. Um, I wish I could get it back into politics. But I'm not sure what to do, except in the evening, he says. In the evenings, I don't have any of these turmoils because I put on the courts, the stately robes of courts of the, of the wonderful dead philosophers and historians and other writers who I revere. And I go and I have these conversations with, you know, he, he doesn't mention any authors by name, but we can imagine his favorite, famous, his favorite authors were people like Tacitus, Plutarch, Sallust, Virgil, Horace. Um, he would have conversations with them. And through these conversations, he says, I have come up with a little book. I've written this little book that's a result of conversing with wonderful ancient thinkers. And it is about principalities, about how princes can rule. So it's this context of exile in which he writes The Prince. And when he first announces the existence of this book to a friend in a letter, he also says, I'm thinking of sending this to one of the Medici. <laughs> so on the basis of this famous letter, we know that Machiavelli wrote The Prince under, you know, in a period of great personal duress. And, and even depression, which he confesses to his friend because he'd suddenly lost his job and been in prison. Um, he had a family to support. But we also know as this much that he was thinking of sending it to one of the Medici. Now, that's all we know. But on the basis of this, it's usually assumed that Machiavelli wrote the prince as a kind of earnest treatise, a compendium of all his political knowledge that he'd gained over the years. And he wants to pre present this as a job application to the Medici, as a way of saying, look, I know you're suspicious of me, but I'm this man of great experience and knowledge. This book is proof of that. I'm giving this to you in hopes that you'll recognize my knowledge and how useful I can be to you in the real dirty business of politics. Please read it, possibly give me a job. That's the usual view. My view, obviously, is a little bit different from that. I like your view. Tell me your, your view. Well, my view is, first of all, if he'd really written this in earnest as a job application to these Medici, think about it. Um, the leader of the Medici household had just been appointed Pope. It was Giovanni de' Medici. He'd been a cardinal. And it was because he'd been appointed, he'd been made Pope that Machiavelli had been released from prison at the time that he was. So we have the, the prince, which is very kind of at least playful and possibly scathing, and at what point it is very scathing, about the Catholic Church, about popes. <laughs> um, it, 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 it mocks them. It says in chapter 11 of the Prince that the papacy is, in effect, one of the most kind of corrupt institutions we've got today. It's a, it's a book that also advises princes, if you read it at face value, 
to lie and cheat and assassinate their way into power. Um, these are not things one would imagine, you know, a pope or indeed any other member of his family who are sort of struggling to gain legitimacy in the eyes of their fellow citizens. You know, being, it's not something you'd think they would take as friendly advice. More likely, if they'd really read it, they would have smelled a rat and thought, you know, this mischievous Machiavelli, everyone knew Machiavelli was a bit of a joker. He, he was very ironic. He was very scathing against the powerful, um, had a big reputation for being a troublemaker. And good chance, I think, that if they'd seen the book and read it straight, they wouldn't think, oh, this is great. This is good, realistic advice. We ought to be taking this. So that's, that's uh, something that made me a bit suspicious, you know, when I, when I started really getting into reading about the background and Machiavelli's kind of context. Um, but there are all sorts of other things once you start reading The Prince that make you suspect that he's not really, it's not all written in his voice. The, the Prince has different tones. It's got some tones where you know, the ones we tend to grasp onto and think this is typical Machiavelli, better to be feared than loved, um, the ends justify the means. He doesn't literally say that, but things along those lines. Um, sometimes you have to enter into evil. If you focus on these lines, it sounds like you're reading something, uh, you know, a book of a calculating political advisor who just thinks you need to, you know, stop your moral scruples and, and think about how things really are in the real world and basic human psychology. Reading the collected works of Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> okay, go on. I'm sorry. But you also suggest that, I mean, it, it's it's submitted as irony that with the thought that any prince who was fool enough to take uh, Machiavelli literally would bring ruin on himself. Well, that's it. Follow my advice and go to your doom, dear prince. Yeah, right? that's what that's at least a few early readers thought. They did think that if you follow this advice, you're obviously going to shoot yourself in the foot because no one's going to trust you, and, and if you don't have anybody trusting you, why should you well, expect to stay afloat for very long? Um, but there's another, the, the voice that I think is less recognized is, um, you know, a really much more moderate one. If you really read The Prince and count every line and not just the ones that, you know, highlighting the ones that you that stand out as Machiavelli and you get things like, um, you know, freedom is the thing that really counts for people. People who live in republics and are used to living in, in republics they will fight to the death to defend themselves. Um, you get lines like, uh, you know, justice, every victory needs to be based on justice. And, you know, there are actually loads of lines like this that you need to reconcile with the other ones. As soon as you, as you start kind of putting the two different voices together, the sort of hardline realist one and the more moderate, you know, thoughtful, reflective one, you start to wonder which one is Machiavelli's. You know, is there one that is Machiavelli's or not? And that's where I think he wants readers to think about this. It was an old classical technique of, uh, of sort of double writing that you find in a lot of Greek and Roman authors as well, who don't tell you, they hide their, their sort of authorial personality and let readers try to work out for themselves which of the different opinions they're hearing um, make most sense on the evidence that's presented. That's the way he used to write his dispatches to Florence when he's writing about Borgia or he's writing about the Pope or he's writing about the King of France. I mean, 
he describes them at face value, but it, but assumes that the back in Florence that Soderini will be able to read through the lines. Exactly, that's right. He's he. There, there's a lot he couldn't say as a diplomat in sending his dispatches home because, you know, if if you say something a bit nasty about the Pope or the Pope's son in a dispatch and send it to Florence, chances are that amazing crew of papal spies and censors are going to be able, they're going to intercept some of these letters and possibly find them and send it back to the Pope. So you had to be very careful as a diplomat what you openly say about the people you were talking to. So he had his ways of kind of subtly saying things that sounded like praise or sounded neutral, but they signaled to the readers back home you know, this isn't good, what's happening isn't really good, or this person, we know what the Pope is really like, and it's really not not trustworthy. All right, now let's move forward to the last 10 years of Machiavelli's life. The Prince is published in 1518, is that it correct? It wasn't published in his lifetime, actually. It was um, ah, neither the okay. Prince nor the Discourses were published in his lifetime, only about seven years after he died, I believe. Does it begin to circulate in 1518 or not? As far not? as we know, uh, and again, there's so many kind of things we don't know about Machiavelli and, and the prince, which is one of the reasons why we still don't, <laughs> we still talk about what does it all mean. It was circulating as soon as, you know, from 1513 or 14. He started sending out, out copies to friends, and it was known to be circulating certainly by 1518, because we have a few other references to it in other works. But 1518 is the year that he, he writes his play, mm-hmm. The Mandrake, is That's that right? right? Mm-hmm. As far as we know, yep. Be- because now he's not employed in government. Now he is kind of, he's in the country, he's writing, he has a circle of like-minded young men who are interested in, in politics, and, and he he's writing his history of Florence, he's writing his discourses, and, and so he's becoming now, the last 10 years, more of a writer than he is uh, a statesman. Yeah, um, I think he, he, he found something useful to do. He'd always been interested in writing. He'd, he'd dabbled in playwriting before. In fact, he did write a whole play that's lost, but we, we know a bit about its contents back in 1504. So he, he'd had these literary interests and ambitions for a long time, but when he was deprived of you know, being of his political posts, what was he going to do? Uh, he decided to write. And for most of his writing, he didn't earn any money. So he was writing really out of his own need to write um, about politics and other things. But he did, in the end, write the Florentine histories for salary. And the mandrake he wrote on his own steam, inspired by his young group of friends in this circle of, of interested people. And it became a huge hit. It was actually the one work for which Machiavelli was most well-known outside Florence um, in his own lifetime. Briefly summarize it. I mean, it's, it's comic farce. Is yeah, that it right? looks, on the surface, it, it's, it's been described as just a sexual farce. It's, the basic story is um, a young man wants to seduce a virtuous married woman, and he manages to enlist her mother, a priest, uh, you know, his own servant, and a few other people to kind of you know, connive with him to put on disguises and end up in bed with her. So, you know, you can you can read it or watch the play at that level and enjoy it without knowing anything about Florentine history or Machiavelli. Um, but there are all sorts of little political messages 
underneath it as well, which I think, you know, if, if people read my book, by the time they get to the Mandrake, they'll have enough sort of historical background to see the parallels. Because, you know, the, the political level is the guy who comes back and wants to seduce the virtuous maiden very closely resembles the Medici who'd come back from France, as this young man had, into Florence and want to seduce the virtue of a sort of republic. <laughs> so the woman at one level you can read as, you know, representing the virtuous republic. And, uh, and, and it shows how it's not just this bad, you know, this man, the seducer, who's kind of got corrupt, hilariously corrupt intentions. It's also these people around him at all different social levels from, you know, religious, from the clergy to the women, her mother, <laughs> to the lowest kind of social classes who are somehow doing things enabling this person to come back and steal the virtue of Lucrezia or the Republic. Um, it, the, the, the character of Lucrezia is the woman who gets seduced in Machiavelli's play, also the name of the, uh, the woman who famously in, the, in Rome's founding um, story a woman called Lucrezia was raped by the last Roman king, um, which was the catalyst for the creation of a republic um, out of what had been a kingly Roman state before that. In Machiavelli's version, it's the other way around. Instead of kind of going from kingship to republic, you have a kind of play that pictures it going from <laughs> the rape of a republic, turning to a sort of corrupt state of affairs where this, uh, you know, the, the seducer ends up ruling and he succeeds and the woman actually collaborates with him in the end. She says, oh, good, let's go and cheat on my husband. <laughs> so, so it's a kind of interesting political twist. But, I mean, it, it puts Machiavelli as a writer into the category that is nothing is exact in terms of analogy, but, I mean, it, I mean some of Shakespeare's history plays and or... Flaubert's novel, The Sentimental Education on the Corruption of the Sensibility in Paris during the Second Empire, uh, but or even even as a novelist along the lines of, of, of Balzac, I mean, I mean, he is, is he not, a really good writer? He's a brilliant writer, and this is something that yeah. Italians still recognize, and um, we don't in the English-speaking world um, don't usually know the Mandrake um, as well as, as the people in Italy. In Italy, everyone knows the play The Mandrake, and they, they still count it as one of the best plays in, ever written in Italian. And, um, and they recognize his style, that you know, Machiavelli's style is just outstanding. Um, it's, it's brilliantly crisp. It's uh, deeply analytical while looking simple. It's kind of deceptively simple. And this is something we miss often in, in translation, how uh, the kind of clarity of his writing can sometimes conceal a deliberate ambiguity in the way that he's, you know, <laughs> constructing things. It's not, he's not always trying to get across one simple, clear message with all those nice, simple, clear words. He's playing with us. And I think trying, trying to kind of uh, criticize power without being too overt about it, because it wasn't safe to be too open about it. He had to find all sorts of ways to, you know, criticize what was going on in Florence with the Medici, with people trying to establish princely power in a republic without openly pointing the finger. And he was just brilliant at doing this. Well, I mean, so was 
Voltaire, when he takes to writing history, you can say things when you're seemingly writing history that are pertinent to the present, but don't necessarily get you thrown in prison or beheaded. I mean, it's the same kind of problem that uh, Shakespeare is dealing with in, in Elizabethan London. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, you've spent all this time, you've written other books about Machiavelli. How do you come out at the end, Erica? How do you uh, see him and value him and, and uh, place him in the scheme of things? I think he is still, I mean, he's one of the most brilliant and intriguing critics. And I think this is why it's so important that more people, you know, come to know this less familiar Machiavelli, because the usual picture that we have is of somebody who was either, um, you know, Satan himself, or more usually today, probably, well, he was a pragmatic, you know, he was a very pragmatic thinker. He understood that political realities and politics are complicated and, and that you cannot judge them by the same moral standards as you do every private life. I think there's a lot more to him than that. And there's this critic, he's a, he's a, crit- a critic of a lot of what we take to be political realism, actually. He's not recommending a lot of what we assume that he is recommending when we just read him straight and take all of those little famous Machiavellian sentences at face value. And, and this is why I think, you know, really, he's, he's somebody who knows how to criticize power, but without expecting readers to just listen to his authority. I mean, one of Machiavelli's favorite lines is take nothing on authority. And he really wants his readers to judge for themselves from the examples he gives, what works, what doesn't, what works in the long term in politics as opposed to what seems to work in the short term. I, th- I think your book is immensely valuable for the same reasons. And uh, it was a pleasure to speak with you. And I, and I as I think I said earlier, I hope that uh, our entire uh political commentariat as well as our elected representatives have the wit to read your book and and, and learn from it. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. We've been talking to the scholar Erica Benner about her new book, Be Like the Fox. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.